Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. Lead SA. .co.za The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Right, it is 28 minutes to 10 o'clock. You know how it goes. You give us a call. Any question that you have for Chris, uh, he's very happy to answer your questions. And on 021-446-0567, I'm taking your SMSs on 31702 and 31567. Good morning to you, Chris. Morning, Reedy. Here for my favourite time of the week. Oh, that's oh, that's just too great. You've made my day. Thank you very much. Okay, Chris. So, what's this about spiders getting the green light for jumping? I thought they've oh. always had it. Well, about thirteen percent of the spiders that are in the world are what are called jumping spiders. They're the ones that have a big array of eight eyes at the front of their heads, and some of those eyes are called principal eyes. There are two of those, and then there are accessory eyes around the edge. And the way they catch their lunch is that they gauge the distance they have to go from where they are to where the thing they want to eat is, and they pounce on it. And they do it with remarkable accuracy. So how do they judge those distances? Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at what other animals do, humans, for example, have two eyes, and by the brain getting two slightly different images from each of our two eyes and comparing them, that's how we work out how far away things are. You can prove this to yourself if you cover one of your eyes. It's much harder to judge distances. The other way that some animals do it is by looking at one object, looking at the other object and comparing the degree of focusing that's needed between them. That's another example, and some vertebrates and chameleons, for example, would do that. Mm -hmm. And a third way is that some insects... They move their heads a tiny amount and they look at how much the objects move across their retina because things close to them will move less far than things farther away, and that's called parallax. So what do spiders do? Well, a group in Japan, this is at Osaka City University, Takashi Nagata and his colleagues, and they've published this in the journal Science this week, they covered up all of a set of the eyes on these jumping spiders, apart from one of their principal eyes, and then tested to see if they were any good at doing this jumping trick still, and they were still getting the prey spot on. So they can't be using the double eye trick. They weren't moving their heads around, so what were they doing? The scientists then took a closer look Mm -hmm. inside their eyes at the retina, and it turns out the retina of these spiders has several layers to it, 
and the lights of different colours are focused on different layers of this retina because lights of different colours bend different amounts as they go through the lens. But they were a bit surprised to see one layer of the retina with a detector array for green light, except that green light wouldn't be focused there. And you think, well, why would they have their retina set up to see a colour of light that shouldn't be focused there. In fact, it would see a blurry image in that place. Mm. And then they realise what's going on is the spiders are making a crystal clear image in one place on the retina and they are comparing how blurred the light is on the green, or this green detecting bit of the retina and the degree of blur tells them how far things are. And they proved it by putting the spiders under different coloured lights. So under green light, where the system should work perfectly, the spiders made unerring jumps onto prey but when they put them under red light, which is bent much more, sorry, which is bent much less than green light, the spiders therefore underestimate how far it is to the object and they jump short of the target. Mm. And this proves this, is, this trick is in action. Who would have thought they had this ingenious way of doing things, which is sort of similar to the way that we also work out distances because by doing the same sort of trick by looking at something close to us and then looking at something further away or how blurred the things are in the background we can also work out distance so spiders especially these jumping spiders are pretty clever mm. wow sounds like it now chris i, I have a question here uh, from a friend of mine uh, she wanted to know is it better to cover an open wound with a bandage or a, a lastoplast or whatever or just leave it so that it gets fresh air and heals faster she's sure that she doesn't need to cover her wound because it will heal faster what's the answer well as a journalist you're supposed to be completely impartial really but <laughs> what is your view what do you do i don't do i don't get wounds that's what. <laughs> what would you recommend I would cover it. I'll tell you why. Not because it would heal faster or not, because it just looks better. I don't want someone's <laughs> gaping open wound visible for all to see. It's just vanity. Tell you what, though, <laughs> a friend of mine who's, who's got dark skin, he got a cut, went to the chemist and said, can I have some skin-coloured plasters? Because he, he had to do an acting job. Yeah. And, and of course, what they gave him was white plasters. <laughs> he said, well, that's not skin coloured, is it? And it sort of stood out more than the original cut did. Um, but no, the, the answer is that it depends. Okay. Because in circumstances where you might actually have dirt or other things ingressing into the wound, it's better to cover it. In circumstances where the wound can remain clean, it's better not to cover it. So let me explain. When you have an open wound, you are breaching your body's best defence, which is the skin. And the skin is an excellent barrier to the ingress of microbes because it's a thick layer that is impenetrable to tiny microbial cells. Mm -hmm. But if you break that barrier, you've lost your suit of armour. And then the second line of defence, chemical weapons in the form of immune cells and antibodies and inflammatory processes in the skin, has to kick in. Okay. If you put dirt in a wound, though... Any foreign body in the human body stops the immune system working properly because where there is a foreign body, there are places for bugs to lurk and the immune system can't get at them. It's a bit like if you imagine having a, a load of brick walls and things, there are places around the back of the brick wall for the baddies to hide and the goodies can't shoot at them. <laughs> and if so, if you've got dirt in there, it will affect how well the immune system can work. 
So keeping wounds clean is very important. And that's why if you have a, a bad accident or a laceration or you cut yourself or you fall off your bike and get dirt in a wound, that's why your mum always insisted on getting that cotton wool and the bottle of disinfectant and swabbing the wound out, even though it really hurts. <laughs> and if you have a really bad wound, why doctors will take you to an operating theatre and debride the wound and actually anaesthetise the patient and go in and they rake out all of the sloughed off horrible mm. necrotic tissue and all the and all the muck because then you've got a clean wound and the immune system will work properly nowhere for the baddies to hide if you have a, an area that's not going to get dirty actually keeping it open is a good idea because then any muck that is in there can easily exit you're not trapping the baddies in air can get in and many of the baddies don't like air so air stops the bad bugs from growing and it also encourages the cells that are healthy cells to regenerate so the skin seals itself back up again because the wounds are often lower in oxygen than you like them to be so access to the air keeps them oxygenated and keeps the cells happy my friend will be very happy to hear that okay let's go to Eunice in Indonesia hi there Eunice hi really morning mm. to you and, and, and the scientists yes good morning um, in growing toenails um, I need to know why is it so common on the feet and, and not on the hands? Mm. Hello, Eunice. I think the reason for this is twofold. One, I think that it's got something to do with the way in which people wear their footwear. And I think this encourages downward pressure on the nail plate, which pushes the nail into the margin of the nail bed um, at the edge of the where the nail meets the skin. And that encourages it to grow in. Two, I think it's got to do with the way in which people cut their nails. Because if you follow the advice given by um, chiropodists, people who advise on cutting your toenails, and doctors who have to deal with ingrown toenails, they, they say you should always cut the nail of your, big na of, your, of your feet straight across. A lot of people like to make a nice curve and yes. then buff the nail down because it looks attractive. The problem is that when you make a curve like that, then you've got an edge of the nail which is actually lower than the edge of the skin and it can encourage it to start trying to grow in. And then once it starts to grow in, the skin then responds by growing more because the skin thinks it's being irritated and rubbed and the skin response is to overgrow. And then it traps the nail more and then you get this pussy mess which is extremely painful mm. and very unattractive. And then you have to have the whole thing dug out. <laughs> it looks horrendous when, when you see people doing this in an operating theatre to get a bad one out. It's horrible. Um, oh, no. So the answer is always cut your toenail straight across and uh, try and avoid footwear that might put pressure down on the margins of the nail which would push it in and start the process off. It may be that some people are just unlucky anyway, but I think those are the main reasons. Alright, very interesting and disgusting. <laughs> Let's go to Jay in Plettenberg Bay. Hi there, Jay. Good morning. Uh, yes. Um, could you please tell me who named the oceans and the continents? <laughs> How do they get their names? Mm. Okay. Gosh, I wish I knew. I haven't actually got a clue. That's a very good question, but it's a, it's more of a historical question than a scientific one, so I don't actually know the answer. Um, if you sort of take a guess, I would say that it's going to be early explorers, and they usually base their names on famous things or famous people or had some kind of mythological reason for naming things what they did. Um, but I will try and find out 
but I won't be able to do it now <laughs> <laughs> to get my history books out. That, very, very interesting indeed. I've never thought of that. Okay, Jay, thanks for asking the question. And as we said, it's more a history question than uh, a science-related uh, question, but interesting nonetheless. Uh, we'll do our homework and find out. Thank you. Our lines are open for you, 021-446-0567, I have an email here, uh, Chris. It says, please ask Chris what causes, is it molar pregnancy, M-O-L-A-R, pregnancy? From Vanessa. Yes, another name for uh, a molar pregnancy, pregnancy is um, you have this thing called a hydatiform mole. Okay. What is happening there is that when you have a baby, the baby comes from an egg, which has been fertilised, and as the egg grows, the cells inside increase in number, and they keep dividing and increasing the number of cells, so one cell becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes sixteen, and so on. And then you get to a thing called a morula, which is Latin for mulberry, because you have this little bundle of cells that looks just like a mulberry. And then something interesting happens, because a process called gastrulation kicks in. And this is where the egg effectively hollows itself out. So what you get is a little bundle of cells in the middle, and then you have a load of cells around the outside. And the cells in the middle are called the embryonic body, or the embryo proper, and the cells around the outside are going to become the placenta and the amniotic system, so the bag that the baby grows in. And that system, or that collection of cells, then sits on the surface of the uterine lining, mm -hmm. and it grows into this endometrium, so that the outer layer forms the placenta and connects the baby to mum, and then the inner cell mass turns into what's going to be on the future baby. And sometimes, for some reason the inner cell mass fails to develop properly and all you get is this outer cell layer, which is called the trophoblast, developing. Mm. And it doesn't obey many of the rules that normal development should. And it can just grow invasively straight through the lining of the womb and then into the lining of the, into the wall of the uterus and beyond that. Um, sometimes it doesn't do that, but basically it is a baby, which is, or, or a developing baby in which there's no baby, just the placenta. Oh. And it's usually caused by um, a genetic problem. Um, luckily, they're quite rare. And also, if you abort the pregnancy, because obviously there's no baby there, there's just there's mm. just tissue which has come from the egg growing, then you can usually reset the process and stop it. But it can turn into this nasty condition, choriocarcinoma, where you literally have this tissue growing invasively, and that needs to be dealt with urgently. Hmm, never heard of it. Very interesting indeed. And and Chris, hold on. In in a way that a woman would have a miscarriage or you'd have an abortion, would it also be able to take care of itself because you can have a miscarriage without actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, just normal bleeding and so on. But with this, can it take care of itself? Can the body just get rid of it or would you have to have surgery to remove it? I don't know the answer to that in the sense that I don't know how many miscarriages might have been this happening. I think probably few, um, but probably not impossible. So the answer is that you, you don't have to have medical intervention, but I don't know in uh, what numbers you experience that. Mm -hmm. All right, let's take a break and we'll be back with your calls. Mike and Seth, please stay on the line. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Let's go to Mike in Krugersdorp. Hi there, Mike. Hi, Reedy. Morning, Chris. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a question. You know, we always hear about children getting lost. Hundreds of them are missing or stolen. Is it at all possible, feasible, 
to implant a sort of tracking device in children and could they be tracked over the years if possible, if, if necessary? Hi, Mike. Well, you could argue that there's already such a device about most of our personages because we have mobile phones and with unerring accuracy, your mobile phone company knows where you are and they know what you're doing because they know when you're on the phone. And so the devices that actually do this are really quite small. So mm -hmm. it would be very easy, actually, to, using various power sources that are available to us, uh, produce tiny devices that could emit weak radio signals that could be picked up by beacons and could track individuals. Another way that this is possible to do is to use what's good RF um, technology, where you don't have to have a power source in a device. You use the same system that supermarkets do to stop their stuff being stolen. You put a tag on the person, and this tag has a tiny coil in it, tuned to a certain radio frequency, and when that person goes near a beacon or a transmitter, the radio frequency being beamed at them induces energy in the coil activating the little circuits in the device and causing it to re-emit a signature sequence that the beacon then detects and it logs this product or this individual. And so it would be very easy to do that too. It does, of course, rely on the fact that you're near a source uh, of, of, um, of radiation that you can pick up uh, the source from again. I didn't say that very well. I'll try that again. It does rely on the fact that you're near some kind of beacon uh, or near enough that the energy can get into the device and the device can then talk back to it, which is why I'm saying about the mobile phone idea with a long-term energy supply in it. Um, but it's certainly possible. And in some places, actually, um, and in America, I've talked to people there and we had a whole debate about the ethics of this. Some companies do actually put implants into their workers mm. so that if they're in high security jobs or whether IP is very important or national security is important, uh, they can be recognized by the building around them and access is only granted to certain types of information or certain parts of the building and so on. And so people are obviously a bit sensitive about that. And we had a big debate on this whole idea of cybernetics, wiring yourself up to make you part man, part machine, uh, on the Naked Scientist radio mm. show about two weeks ago. And if you want to get that episode on YouTube from the 15th, not on YouTube, on iTunes, from the 15th of Jan, the debate's quite interesting. Hmm, sounds like it. And uh, we, we have an SMS here that says, please ask Chris, what causes ringworms and uh, is it really a worm? That's from Chanel. <laughs> no, it's a fungus infection. And it's very common in kids and especially when kids all play together and uh, go to nursery and so on, they, they can transmit this between them. So, you know, it's fungal infection and it causes these little ring-shaped uh, lesions on the skin um, which grow sort of outwards and it's relatively easy to treat. So, um... Yes, it's not. It's certainly not a worm, thank God. <laughs> Rochelle, Rochelle in Milnerton. Good morning. Hi, morning to you. Mm. Um, I was diagnosed a little while ago with what they call a TIA, a transcemic attack, a transient ischemic attack. I went to bed on the Thursday night and woke up Friday afternoon with, um, uh, or lying on a table with my head being X-rayed. Now, I was in the hospital for a week and the doctor took tests and blood tests and this test and that test and they told me it was a, this TIA. Now, I looked it up on the computer when I came home and everything next to TIA in brackets says mini stroke. Hello? Yes, we're listening to you. Okay, and um, it really scared the hell out of me because when my mother passed away, she three months before she died, her left, her right hand went limp and her left eye 
and that was about 20 odd years ago and the doctor just sent her to a, um, a physio for the hand and had her eye examined and he said everything was fine. Three months later, she died from a stroke and she was a healthy, wonderful woman. Okay, so you want to know what... I'm tia- petrified. Okay. Uh, I'm on medication now okay. and also I'm on cholesterol tablets because my cholesterol apparently is not was not that good. And a dietitian gave me a wonderful eating plan. And I'm okay, hold on, Michelle. What's your problem? Your, 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 your question is what? My scare is that is it is it a stroke? Is okay, it, is it a, a mini stroke? Okay, Chris. Hi, Rochelle. Uh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. The answer is that a TIA, transient ischemic attack, is actually the same process that would be classed as a stroke were the symptoms to have lasted for a long time. So we talk about stroke as being a permanent neurological deficit. So when the blood supply to a part of the brain is interrupted and that part of the brain suffers the loss of cells and tissue because it loses its blood supply, the deficit that ensues is permanent and that's called a stroke. But sometimes people ahead of having a stroke or sometimes just out of the blue have a TIA, transient ischemic attack, and this is where you have stroke-like symptoms, but luckily the symptoms resolve again, usually completely, and within 24 hours. The mechanism of a TIA is usually the same as a stroke in the sense that often it's the transient blockage of a blood vessel or an interruption of the blood supply to a part of the nervous system. So sometimes a TIA can herald the fact that there might be a problem in the blood vessels and that you should get something done about it. And the fact that you've been given uh, treatment to control your blood pressure and your cholesterol is really good news because now having had the TIA, you know that you have these various underlying risk factors and that means that if they're controlled, the risk of having a subsequent CVA or cerebrovascular accident is much lower. But the TIA process can tell you that something's up and that you might be at much greater risk of having a stroke, so you need to do something about it, which you have, which means you've now massively reduced your risk, I'm pleased to say. Good luck to you, Rochelle. I hope everything works out. Samuel in Centurion. Hi, Reddy. My question to the naked scientist is about the space shuttle. In this case, I refer to Endeavour Space Shuttle. I'm wondering, when they launch a space shuttle, there is this huge orange thing, like a cylinder, and there are two white little cylinders on the side, which release a lot of thrust when the launch is happening. Now, after about 18 minutes, there is a separation whereby the shuttle goes on and then these other objects pay. So I wanted to know what happens to these other objects. Do they fall back on the ground? Where do they fall? Because I happen, I've never heard of that. Chris? Hi, Samuel. Yes, you've hit the nail on the head. So you have on the space shuttle the world's biggest bomb. Basically, it's mm-hmm. a massive mixture of liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. And you mix these two together and they burn to produce a huge amount of energy because they're reacting to form water and that is a very hot reaction and the heat causes the expansion of that gas and it gets thrown out of the back of the space shuttle from the rocket very, very hard and very, very fast. And by Isaac Newton's third law, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, this gives the space shuttle a big push in the opposite direction and pushes it upwards. To give it an extra bit of push, it also has these two side rocket boosters, which are solid fuel boosters, and they give it extra acceleration for the first X number of minutes of the flight. 
But they are not of zero mass, and so once they are burned out and consumed, and they've got the space rocket up to a certain speed, they are jettisoned because if you need to get into orbit, you have to achieve what's called escape velocity. And in order to get to escape velocity, you've got to burn a certain amount of fuel. You don't want to be carrying that extra mass up there with you because that will add to the fuel cost of the mission. So by getting rid of them, then you make it more likely that you're going to get into orbit at, at lower cost. They don't get thrown away, though, those boosters, because they come down on parachutes, I think, and they can be recovered and then recycled, and re they get recharged with new fuel, and then they get strapped onto the space shuttle. Or at least they did, because the space shuttle program has, of course, now been ended, because the shuttles have all been retired. The last flight was late last year, and they're all going into museums and things now. All right, Chris, uh, before I let you go, I've got a question that I know you won't be able to answer. Somebody has sent us an SMS. says, Chris, what do women want? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? I think women want uh, men to be nice to them, is the answer. <laughs> I won't say, I won't add anything, otherwise we'll be here the whole day. I'll see you again next <laughs> week Friday, Chris. Thanks, Reedy. Have Thank a great you. weekend, everyone. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.